This is The Guardian. Today, our culture writers on what to read, watch and listen to this autumn. While we're still basking in the last of the summer sunshine, it might seem surreal to imagine that it's not going to be long before we're spending long autumn evenings at home, snuggled under a blanket watching silly reality shows or big budget dramas, or popping your headphones in, wrapping up cosily and getting out for a walk with the best new albums soundtracking your route. Well, today I'm joined by three of The Guardian's culture writers, TV editor Kate Abbott, music editor Laura Snapes, and Lucy Knight, our commissioning editor for books, to get some inspiration. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the best of culture for autumn 2022. Laura, I'm gonna start with you. The Mercury Prize takes place this month. It's the most prestigious album prize in the UK and there are 12 artists nominated. Can you give us a rundown of them? Um, It's quite an exciting year. There's 11 first-time nominations. The only person who's been up for it before is Little Sims and she's definitely deserving of a nod for Sometimes I Might Be Introvert, which was a lot of people's album of the year last year. Niger women got the melanin dripping living in the back looking like fire Other great stuff is Joy Crooks, her debut album Sam Fender's second album, 17 Going Under There's a really exciting outlier in Gweno who's a Welsh synth-pop artist but who makes uh, her music in Cornish I thought you'd be excited as a fellow Cornish person And my personal favourite and who I'd really, really love to win is Self-Esteem, who's Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who used to be in Slow Club and they made sort of like boring schmoopy indie. But now, like last year, that was the Guardian's album of the year. She makes really exciting, exposing pop. She's been absolutely blowing up festivals this summer. It's just like a sea of... A lot of women in their sort of twenties and thirties just crying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stop trying to have so many friends. Don't be intimidated by all the babies they have. Don't be embarrassed that all you've had is fun. Prioritize pleasure. At her Glastonbury performance, her outfit was in tribute to Madonna's cone bra and also the Meadow Hall shopping centre in Sheffield of her youth, <laughs> which is a sort of dome-like structure. And so she had this massive plastic bra, which had two domes I didn't and know huge that's what nipples. That was. It was I didn't either until somebody texted me halfway through the performance. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah and, and just her whole stage setup. I wasn't expecting her to be such a full-on pop star mm-hmm. watching that Glastonbury set. Her backing singers and dancers, it's just, it's gorgeously choreographed Mm -hmm. yeah there's like proper dancing choreo but then the most tender bits are they hold each other a lot and they sort of move as one unit and it's just so beautiful so in that uh, mercury lineup you've got some mega pop stars harry styles Mm -hmm. how has he done this he's gone from being part of the biggest manufactured boy band come through x factor 
and become this darling of the broadsheet and fashion press. He's nominated for his third album, Harry's House. What do you reckon to it? I think it is a good album. It's sort of a bit six out of ten, but when you see him perform, it like self-esteem, it goes to ten out of ten. He like really electrifies the room. As it was, as it was, I think maybe one of the reasons that he's getting this recognition now is because he's slightly pulled back a bit from the I am a very serious artiste thing that really defined his early solo career. But I would say on this album, he stepped back from the rock posturing and sort of seems happily at home in a style of soft rock. You know, it's very breezy pop, but there's a depth of reference there if you want to look for it. Like Harry's House, the title, it references a Joni Mitchell song and also a 70s Japanese album called Hosono House by a guy called Hiromi Hosono. Wow. Yeah. Okay. No, I so didn't you, you know You can that. go as deep as you want. <laughs> um, and some of the other nominations, and you kind of touched on this with self-esteem, but reflect this resurgence of uh, a wry, observational British uh, kind of music like that people might associate with somebody like Jarvis Cocker or Mike Skinner. Self-esteem, yard act, wet leg all using spoken word at points to make this statement about society today. Why do you think that style is cutting through at the moment? One of my theories, when it first started coming out a few years ago, was that our government is so sort of incapable of giving us a straight line on anything that like a very direct form of delivery maybe has like a certain appeal to it. But I think they are all using it in slightly different ways. Like Yard Act, I think they use it to sort of perform characters and also to be quite confrontational. Wet Leg use it um, in a very musical way. We had Iggy Pop write a piece for us where he said that the way they sing is metronomic and he really liked that. There's um, great albums out later this year by the British band Dry Cleaning and Florence Shaw, who also, her delivery is like that, though hers is more sort of like surrealist, almost like found poetry kind of observations put next to each other. She said that she thinks that, you know, being exposed to like So Solid Crew as a teenager probably influenced that sort of form of delivery. God, that's so interesting with dry cleaning because to watch her on stage, I wasn't thinking of So Solid Crew no. at all. Yeah, yeah, she, um, I saw her for the first time at Glastonbury and she reminds me of like an alien who's landed on a new planet and is just deeply suspicious of everything and doesn't <laughs> want to make any sudden movements. Yeah, so who do you reckon looking over the Mercury nominations is going to get it? I think it will be Little Sims, but I think it will be between her and self-esteem. Okay, Lucy, you're the commissioning editor for books at The Guardian. The Booker Prize is arguably the most important literary prize in the UK. In the past, we've had these huge names like Hilary Mantel, Bernadine Evaristo, Marlon James, countless people who've won that award and it's really boosted their careers. The long list is out now and then next week we'll find out which six of those have been shortlisted. Do you see any particular themes or styles that the judges have gone for this year? The reason why I think it's such an interesting list is because it is so different and there's so many different books on it. You know, there are what you might call kind of issue-driven books or political books, satirical books. But, you know, you think most interesting fiction is kind of drawing on things that are going on in the real world or that have gone historically in the real world. Leila Motley, who's the youngest ever 
nominee uh, she's written this book called Nightcrawling which is based on a true story from sexual abuse and corruption in the uh, Oakland Police Department in 2015. I mean I'm always surprised to hear how few people know about this case but in 2016 in the Bay Area a case broke where a, a young girl was sexually exploited by many different Bay Area police officers and I was a young teenager at the time I'm born and raised in Oakland um, and I yes, um, and I remember being really struck by the way the media talked about this case and the disproportionate focus on how this case might impact the relationship between the police department and the community might damage the trust and she's used that to create this story about this 17 year old girl and she's in this really terrible situation because her father died in prison and her mum is in this kind of halfway house detention center and she then turns to sex work and gets sort of embroiled in this police corruption and racism and I think that does feel like something that people want to talk about right now it's quite exciting to see someone come through who's so young she wrote the book when she was 17 herself and she's kind of got this really raw perspective but also you know remarkably mature perspective on on those things. So we've got the youngest ever nominee and the eldest ever nominee as well who's that yeah so alan garner who's mostly known as a kind of children's fantasy novelist and i think it's great because i think fantasy sometimes does get a kind of snobbish attitude from sort of quote unquote literary types and so it's really interesting to see an author who many would just see as a fantasy author getting recognition so late in his life and I, you know I, I hope that means that uh, fantasy and maybe other genre fiction that people overlook sometimes is going to get treated more fairly maybe by the kind of establishment I guess. Of those 13 books mm. long listed if people are interested in trying out just one or two mm. what would you recommend? Nightcrawling is brilliant. I've just finished it myself. Um, it is harrowing, so I don't know if you'd necessarily want to take it on holiday with you. I did, but um, I did too. <laughs> I second night crawling. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And how and how did you find it? Oh, I lapped it up. It was like the yeah, it's the book I've read quickest in the last like four years. I thought it was incredibly harrowing, as Lucy says, but really beautiful and by the end incredibly moving mm. also you know um oh william by elizabeth strout is on the list and um a lot of people really really love her books um people love olive kitteridge and olive again and this is the third in the lucy barton series which again has been hugely popular you know we often go on about these awards like the booker prize but what's arguably just as impactful on what's popular in books at the moment is tiktok yeah the hashtag book talk has been viewed almost 70 billion times. Um, Lucy, can you explain the influence that TikTok is having on books right now? I mean, it's just huge. Book talk is like the section of TikTok that they've kind of self-called it that, that's about books. And I've seen it and I honestly think it, it is possibly one of the very few pure and good things that are still currently left in this world. And and that's because it's so organic and it has mostly sort of young women or teenage girls. And they just, they're just so excited about books. They just love books. And they talk about this book and they say, oh my God, I love this book. You should read it. I have read 57 books so far this year. And these are the best ones that I have read. I'm going to talk about all the books that have made me cry. And I'm going to rate them on a scale of one 
to screaming, crying, and throwing. And I will be recommending and shoving this book in people's faces until the end of my days. And then that's their whole video, you know, where they'll say a bit about it. And then sometimes they'll cry and they'll film themselves crying at a book because it touched them so much that they cried at it. And then that will go viral. And then those books absolutely fly off the shelves. Like I've, I've spoken to publishers and booksellers who just say there's just nothing quite like it at the moment that just absolutely just sends books off the shelves, even old books, you know, that someone's just... And Jane Austen's really big on that. Yeah, they love it. They, they love Jane Austen. They love like, LGBT stuff. It just has this immense power. Laura, the music charts have been so influenced by what's big on TikTok over the past few years. And then I was listening to Lizzo's new album recently, and there are so many kind of pithy, memeable lines in there. And I was thinking, you know, kind of cynically is this being made to be clipped up on TikTok? But I'm interested to know what you think. To what extent is TikTok really still controlling the way these big artists are making music? Yeah, I don't think you're being cynical at all. I think that that is the way that a lot of people are acting today. But I would say that there's like an interesting distinction between somebody like uh, Lizzo or even in the Beyonce record, there are bits that you can tell are sort of designed to be clipped out like that. But then I also think there's a more sort of like organic style of virality that we can see in something like the Spanish star Rosalia. She's put out this single called Dispetcher. Even before she put it out, it was the song of the summer in Spain because she had teased little bits of it on TikTok. People went nuts for it. When she was playing it live with an amazing dance routine, people already knew the words because they were so hyped for it from TikTok. And then by the time she put it out, I was looking at the Spotify global charts and I think it's top five. And so that to me seems like a more organic way of doing it, where you're sort of involving fans almost in the creation of the song and sort of giving them a sneak peek and making them feel part of something. That feels like something exciting has been created, whereas the things like the Lizzo record, the bad parts of it, and there's many bad parts of it, feel like they're being made to sort of like retrofit clips. Like there's a song on there called Birthday Girl, and it's yes. like, hey girl, it's your birthday. It's the musical equivalent of like the stickers on Instagram or something where you can put like a present emoji on your story. It's it's like they just came up with the title and they were totally. like, Lizzo needs a birthday song for all the birthday girls out there. Yeah. You're The Guardian's TV editor and the two most hyped shows at the moment are both fantasy prequels. The Game of Thrones one started a few weeks ago and tomorrow we'll be getting the Lord of the Rings one. Both insanely high budget. What can you tell me about them? Well, yeah, it's the kind of epic late summer showdown uh, also known to British fans as Matt Smith in a blonde wig versus Lenny Henry as a hobbit you're making it sound so much more appealing to me now oh well great I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll keep going um, so The Rings of Power which is the Lord of the Rings prequel is kind of notoriously the most expensive show ever made so far they've pumped a billion dollars into it and that's on Amazon that's going to be on Amazon evil does not sleep So Jeff Bezos apparently is a mega 
Tolkien fan and just kind of be out all comers and when the rights came up a few years ago. The first season, which is just about to start, and we don't know that much about the plot. It's kind of very hush-hush. We know that there's a character that we have met before, um, Galadriel, who is an elf who was played in the films by Kate Blanchett and she's now played by Morfith Clark, who's like... It's meant to be a thousand years before, so she's a young elf. There are none of the same actors as in none the films. The, no, none of the same actors. Like, literally no one we know. They had to build the whole world from scratch in New Zealand. And then they've had to tear it down, basically. They started filming in February 2020, Um and so they got stuck in New Zealand, which I would say with COVID is the best place you can have got stuck <laughs> in the world. But they were all stuck there for over a year filming, but they couldn't see anyone. No one could go in or out. There's 800 crew, a cast and crew there. Um, and then they decided to make the very expensive decision to move the whole set and everything back to the UK. So now both of these mega shows are being filmed in the UK. Um House of the Dragon is the Game of Thrones prequel, which is set just 200 years before Game of Thrones. It's kind of small fry, $20 million an episode. It's another kind of fight for the Iron Throne in the House Targaryen, which is all the blonde, the blonde wigs. I, Rickon Stark. I, Corlys Velaryon. I, Bormund Baratheon. Promise to be faithful to King Viserys and to his named heir, Princess Rhaenyra. Rhaenyra Targaryen. Men would sooner put the realm to the torch and see a woman ascend the Iron Throne. And that's on HBO. That's and on Sky. And Sky here, yeah, Sky now, yeah. A lot of Game of Thrones fans were really upset with how the last series unfolded, and. A petition was signed by over a million people campaigning for the final season to be completely remade. What are they doing with this prequel? I mean, is this some opportunity to kind of redeem the franchise? I think absolutely, yeah. There's also going to be a sequel starring Jon Snow, Kit Harington, who plays Jon Snow. And there's also like multiple animations in the works. So I think what they're really going for is get this new prequel get it to be a hit and then the goal for them and for uh, Lord of the Rings I think is just to be a kind of mega of the franchise to rule them all and they want to be like Marvel they want to be like Star Wars they want the animations they want to do spin-off podcasts they want to do multiple series as about multiple different characters in different lands and they want the theme parks Laura what are some of the other major music releases the one that i am most excited about is well there's a couple the new carly ray jepson album just got announced so i'm excited to see what she does there sort of feels like she might be going in a similar direction to lord with solar power which was a divisive album last year i think it's now coming into its own Um, but one that i'm i'm really excited about is Cry Sugar by Hudson Mohawk, who's a Scottish producer. It's his third album. And I mean, in the press release, it says like, he's fully embraced the deranged technicolor of American decadence, the high jolt of a drive through Sprite, the asphalt and trash highway smell, and so on. It's really ravey. It's really intense. I always want music to go faster. This thing sounds like 
it's very speed addled and it's really colorful and kinetic uh it reminds me of like a raven a coral reef or like earlier for some reason i was watching videos of really deep sea jellyfish where you can see the electric current making colors in their body and that's like the visual accompaniment i would say to this record is great lucy the nights are going to start drawing in soon and people are going to be looking forward to some cosy evenings at home. They might be thinking, right, I'll use that time to catch up on some of the big books that I know I'm supposed to have read. Which of those from the past year are actually worth it? Okay, that's a huge question. And I hate the the whole idea of like supposed to have read or supposed to have watched or supposed to have anything. Read books that you like. It's good that you're reading. Most people don't. The Women's Prize winner, um, which is by Ruth Zeki, it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness, um, is great and it's really fun. And it's a bit weird. It's got kind of talking objects in it. And I normally hate that kind of thing. Talking um, objects? Yeah, literally. The narrator is a boy called Benny who's quite traumatised after his dad dies really suddenly. And after that, objects start speaking to him. They're written in a way that the book, the objects all kind of narrate the books and the book itself narrates the book. <laughs> so I'm really not selling it well because it's weird. Oh, I love that. And Sounds I great. normally, I'm not, I, don't, I can't get on board with that kind of thing usually, but she's able to do it in a way where you get inside the character's head so much that you understand why all this stuff is happening. Or maybe you don't understand it. That's possibly the wrong word, but you, you go with it. I'm so excited to read that. I've been listening yeah. to some interviews with Ruth Zeki and she's a Zen Buddhist priest. Yeah. And she really just transmits this air of calm when you listen to her speaking about it. And, you know, and I know that she had quite a tumultuous time like in terms of her mental health when she was younger. And she just seems to carry with her that understanding of what it feels like to be a young person going through that time and the kind of solace that you can find in in objects and, and like your internal voice, talking to yourself, calming yourself by talking to yourself. You know, my inspiration comes from, you know, I think exactly books that I read in childhood because children's books are filled with animated things, right? I mean, objects are always speaking in children's books. You know, they're always behaving and doing things, right? And so the, you know, the the sort of world of animated objects was something that, you know, it's part of the magic of, of childhood. One book that I really want to mention, which is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, who's an American author. And it's about two video game designers. Uh, you don't have to like video games to enjoy the book, but I think, you know, it probably helps if you do. But it is just really, really good. It's kind of charts their friendship when they met in a hospital as children in that the games room of a, of the children's part of a hospital Sam and Sadie they're called and she's there because her sister is really unwell and he was really unwell so that's why he was there and basically they form this friendship over bonding over video games and they both grow up and they reconnect as their students and then they decide to start making video games together it does sound very sweet when you describe it like that it's actually not that sweet it's quite deep and just a brilliant story and it goes into so many other things that you just wouldn't expect picking up. That I picked up and probably misguidedly just thought, oh yeah, video games book, it's going to be about video games. That's cool. There aren't many novels about video games. But then I read it and I was like, actually, this is so much more, it's so much wider than that. And it's, yeah, and it is, it is a love letter to video games, but it's also kind of a love letter to friendship and um, just how to kind of figure out who you are.
Coming up, Kate talks us through the other TV shows that are impressing her at the moment. Kate, I'm really excited that some of my favourite graphic novels are being adapted for TV. The Sandman is one of them. It's had several false starts over the years, but the series is on Netflix now for people to catch up on. Do you reckon they should? Well, it's been 30 years in the making and it is fantastic. Your waking world is shaped by dreams. and nightmares that I create and which I must control. Even if it's not your cup of tea, the kind of epic fantasy, it looks amazing. The world is incredibly well rendered. Like in the opening episode, Dream, who's played by Tom Sturridge, gets trapped in a basement for 100 years by Charles Dance. Dream is one of the endless beings. And so he gets out of his cage after a hundred years at the end of the first episode and realises that his realm has kind of decayed in his absence and that all, you know, hell is broken loose. It's also got Gwendolyn Christie in it as the devil and David Thewlis is in what is one of the best episodes of television ever, the fifth episode, which you'll all be watching. But I must say, I was a big fan of Heartstopper, which also came from a graphic novel. Me too, massively. which is one of the most beautiful, kind of sweet things I've watched all year. Hypothetically, what sort of boy do you want to go out with? Happy New Year, true boy. Well, if it isn't Charlie Spring, Happy New Year. You're over there. It is about two teenage boys... So one is a rugby player called Nick um, and he makes friends with this guy called Charlie who is out at school and then they just like develop the sweetest relationship ever. Nick suddenly realises that he has feelings for him and that he might be bisexual. It's a very joyful look so at joyful. what it is to be a young LGBTQ person. Yeah, And I feel like maybe some of that comes from it's having come from a graphic novel is that it feels very authentic and it's not coming from a kind of top-down place of TV yeah. commissioning of thinking like how can how can we, how can we show that, that, the youth yeah, yeah or, or like show the sadness <laughs> yeah. of LGBTQ life which so often has come up mm. in TV programs one of my favorite things about Heartstopper was most closely linked to it being a graphic novel so every time every time anyone's like arm brushes you know like if you're in maths and your arm brushes someone that you fancy's arm it would be like electric and actual like cartoon leaves animated leaves fly across the screen or like fizzle between people when they're about to hold hands and they're not sure if they want to hold hands and I think that just makes the show more perfect and the author was really really involved in the production and the casting and all of it so Mm. I I think that's why it feels so kind of authentic another graphic novel adaptation that we should talk to people about is Paper Girls yes which is on Amazon and oh are you loving it yeah it's been likened to Stranger Things but actually it kind of branches off to a very different place hey what's your name Erin Tiff so you're Mac, right? So? So I'm um, the first paper boy around here who wasn't a boy. It is about four paper girls who 
go on a paper round on a hell day, which is the day after Halloween. And basically, it involves time travel almost immediately. Suddenly, they emerge from this van in 2019 which is you know 30 years and and then they are faced with one of the girls Erin as a woman played by Ali Wong who I just love so much it is so fun it's such fun what else should we be watching at the moment a league of their own which was a 90s film about women's baseball in the 40s and it starred Madonna and Tom Hanks did you see it no no the film was incredible i loved it as a kid so it's about the rockford peaches who are a women's baseball team so in the in the early 40s during the war all the men were away so women were allowed to play baseball it's a kind of obviously horrifically chauvinistic world and they really absolutely smash it oh we're here for the tryouts. I don't think you understand. This is the All-American League. We're pretty All-American. Who was that? Um, what I love about the TV series, which has been created by Abby Jacobson, who made Broad City, which I also love. What I love about what she's done with the series is that they take what happened in the film and they really deepen it so they really show the stories of the queer women and the women of colour who who weren't allowed to play in the baseball teams but they tell their stories and the fight to get in baseball teams for the women of colour and the women who were in an environment where if you were queer you were called an invert and it's just also really fun and I really enjoyed that a lot. Another thing I've really enjoyed on Netflix is called Mo. It's a really warm comedy about a Palestinian asylum seeker who's been living in Houston, Texas for like 25 years, but still isn't meant to be there. And he's waiting for his case to come up. So it's a kind of look at the US immigration system. But he's like the kind of guy, he has a bottle of olive oil in his pocket, his mum's olive oil, of course, in his pocket at all times. It's a really fun comedy, but it kind of, by the end of the series, it goes somewhere totally unexpected. And I really enjoyed that. Lucy, what, yes. what have we got coming up in terms of books? Okay, so um, one of the biggest things um, for Cormac McCarthy fans is that there's going to be two straight after each other. So there's been a 16-year hiatus after he wrote his last novel, The Road. And then there's going to be one in October and one in November. So two novels, it's kind of a Taylor Swift-style double release. Wow. Um, what? Yeah, I mean, Amazing. I don't know. He must have just had them both ready and decided that they needed to both come out at once. That's kind of quite a quirky way to publish and then there's, I'm really personally excited for um, Camilla Shamsi's next novel, which is called Best of Friends, which is coming in September. And then there's also two quite high profile autobiographies um, in the kind of nonfiction genre, which is uh, the Alan Rickman Diaries, which are his kind of posthumous diaries, which are being published, which, yeah, supposed to be amazing. And Mallory Blackman has finally written an autobiography, which has been kind of quite long awaited, um, which should be really interesting. Right, so we've got an absolute bounty of things to watch, listen to and read over the next few weeks and beyond. Laura, Lucy, Kate, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Laura Snapes, Kate Abbott and Lucy Knight. You can, of course, keep up with their work at theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena and sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. Our executive producers are Elizabeth Casson and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian. 